This morning, we, we um, continue to walk through the book of Revelation, and as you turn to Revelation chapter 2, the, the kids are dismissed, and I'm, I'm guessing this is probably the only um, Revelation 2 Easter sermon in America this morning. Uh, you, you know, we typically go through like an Easter story, like uh, one of the gospel accounts of the resurrection, but I thought it would be a good opportunity for us this morning just to show that Easter is found throughout the Bible, that it's not just something you find in the Gospels, but uh, you'll see the Gospel, this, this hope of Christ all throughout Scripture. So I promise you this morning, you will see the, this Easter story in this passage, but it, it's probably the only time you'll ever hear Revelation 2 for Easter. Uh, so, so far in Revelation, we've been looking at these seven churches, these seven letters to these seven churches. And we've seen the church in Ephesus, they had abandoned their first love. Smyrna was not rebuked like Ephesus had been, but they were facing intense persecution. Last week we saw where Pergamum had compromised the theology and behavior of some people in the church. And this morning we look at the church at Thyatira who was um, tolerating Jezebel. The main point of this letter to this church is that they had unrepented leadership. That they had leadership um, that needed to be removed from that position or the entire church will face judgment. Uh, this leader in the church, they had been called to repentance, but they refused to repent. And now the church is tolerating her in her unrepentant state. So Jesus wants this church to see that tolerating false teaching, corrupt morality will ultimately lead to their judgment. But those who hold fast to the true gospel, those who cling to Christ, will receive the ultimate reward, which is what we've been singing about already. Like, there's this theme of we are conquerors in Christ. And so this passage ultimately confronts our loyalty. Like, who are you loyal to? Are you loyal to man, and in this case, Jezebel, or are you loyal to Jesus? So that's where we're headed this morning. Where does your loyalty lie? Are you loyal? Do you... Lift up the name of Jesus, or are you committed to Jezebel? So let's read our passage this morning. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and is seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan... To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers 
the one who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Uh, Father, may we um, this morning have an ear to hear what your Spirit is saying to us this morning. May we hold fast until you return to gather your people. Lord, may we not be committed. Um, May we not follow the works of Jezebel. Lord, may we be committed to you. May we cling to you. May we hold fast to the true gospel. And Lord, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So out of these seven letters written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, this is the longest of the seven letters. It's also addressed to the least unknown, the least important, the least influential of these seven cities. We find the introduction in verse 18. Says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. We see that this is written to this church in the city of Thyatira. It is quite possible that this church was established um, by a, a wealthy lady named Lydia. We are introduced to Lydia in the book of Acts. We learn in Acts 16 that Lydia was from the city of Thyatira. She was a business lady. She was doing business in in, uh, Philippi when Paul, being led by the Spirit, leads Lydia to trust in Christ. So at some point, she obviously goes back home to this city, um, and she may have been instrumental in establishing this church. So it's kind of cool to think, as this letter was being distributed, maybe she was in that original audience receiving this letter um, from Christ. So after we see... Who the letter is addressed to, we now see how Christ describes himself in the rest of verse 18. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus establishes himself here as the Son of God. Now, the title Son of God would have been um, a common, familiar phrase in this city. Like many of these cities in Asia Minor, temples were erected to Roman gods, they were, they were extremely popular, and in this city, um, one of the most popular gods was Apollo. Uh, he, he was known as the son of Zeus. So here, Jesus is establishing himself as the one true son of the great God, the living God, not Zeus, but the one true Yahweh. So Jesus is the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. He is the king. Jesus sees all. This image of this burnished bronze means that he is pure. This is a king worthy of your worship this morning. But many in this church in Thyatira showed their loyalty to Jezebel rather than to Jesus. Last week we saw in Pergamum, Uh, The church there, they tolerated poor doctrine, immorality of some of the people in the congregation. The church in Thyatira, they were doing the same thing. They they were tolerating, um, just like the church in Pergamum, but yet this church is far worse off. The other church from last week, they were compromising what people were doing in the congregation. Here in Thyatira, 
they were compromising and tolerating what was being done among leadership. When leadership is corrupt, the damage is always far more detrimental to the church body as a whole. But with everything they were doing wrong, Jesus first praises them for what they were doing right. Look down at verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus graciously praises this church for the good things that he sees. I I love how even when he needs to rebuke and correct them, he will first affirm and encourage them in what they're doing well. I think this is a great model for us uh, when it comes to confrontation. Uh, So often we just belittle. I, I just think about parenting. Parents, do you praise your children for what they do well? Or do you only just get on to them of the things they do poorly? We need to lift them up, encourage them. Uh, spouses, do you just belittle your spouse? This is, let me just give you the list of all the things you do wrong. And you fail to boast and brag on the things they do well. I'm guilty of those things. Um, and, and so here's this beautiful model. I, I think what we learn here is that when you build people up, when you encourage them, when you show them that you love them, it's a lot easier for them to hear the rebuke. Uh, it, it's a lot easier for them to take that as a, as a loving rebuke instead of just you bashing them. So these letters, these seven churches, they're, they're good reminders for us all that there is no perfect church. Like all these churches have something wrong with them. Every church you've ever gone to has something wrong with it. There's no perfect church. I don't know if you know that about us. Did you know that? If you're a guest this morning, we are not a perfect church. Uh, we, you know, we, we're not a church that, uh, that is going to have all of our act together. You know, here we are in the middle of construction in the kids' wing when probably, you know, in, in, at least in America, like Easter is like the big Sunday. You've got to have everything ready for Easter Sunday. We don't. We're in the middle of construction. So we've got the kids spread out. Uh, we, we moved the TVs from here this week to up here, but you see we ran out of time. We didn't finish painting um, some of you couldn't see the screen because the lights are in the way. We're moving the lights. We're getting new lights, okay? So just be patient. The trustees worked so hard this week um, doing a lot of work in this room and around the building. But we are not a perfect church by any means. Uh, and we need to stop being consumers of the church. We need to stop being critical of everything the church is doing wrong and praise the church for some of the things that it's doing right. So Jesus likes these characteristics of this church. He praises them for these things. He also loves that their latter works exceed their first, meaning that this was a church that had not grown stagnant. They were not satisfied in their service to the Lord. They continued to grow in their faith. They were doing more for the Lord at this point in their history than when they had first started as a church. I think that's incredible. And so Jesus commends them Uh, For five things they're doing well. He says, I I, I see your works. Praise you for your works. For your love, for your faith, your service, patient endurance. That's a pretty good reputation. I would love for our church to have that reputation. Like when you're out at work around the neighborhood and people ask you what church you go to, you tell them you go to Huntington Community Church. Oh, I, I love that church. You guys, you're about works and love and faith and service patient endurance. 
a pretty good reputation. But even though they were doing many things well, I love that Jesus doesn't just give them a pass. He doesn't just say, oh, you guys are so, you're doing so many just good things that, you know what, I'm not going to look at the things that you're not doing very well. He loves them enough to still address those things. There was a dark spot of cancerous sin eating away from the inside of Christ's bride. And Christ couldn't just stand and watch this happen. So now Jesus turns to address the serious spiritual sickness harming the health of this body in Thyatira. Verse 20. It says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. This is why this church is worse off than the previous three churches. There's someone in leadership whom Jesus refers to her as that woman Jezebel. This is probably not her actual name, but rather a comparison to the character of Queen Jezebel from the Old Testament. Jezebel was probably the most wicked queen in Israel's history. We see her wickedness described in First and Second Kings. She was married to a weak and uh, pathetic man named King Ahab. She took advantage of his passivity and basically ruled Israel. Jezebel was not even Jewish. Um, Ahab married this pagan queen, Jezebel, and so as a um, not being a Jew, she had other gods, and so she worshipped um, Baal rather than the Jewish god, and she led Ahab, her husband, to worship Baal. She killed God's prophets. She was known for murdering a righteous man named, named Naboth just because she wanted his vineyard. She was evil personified. And now God scolds this church because they were tolerating that woman Jezebel. You think about the name Jezebel, Olivia and I, we've never found out the gender of uh, the baby when she's pregnant, so we've always had to find a boy name and a girl name. Um, Our oldest um, son, Xavier, was born in 2007. It's fascinating to watch how since 2007 till now, like how names change, like which one's popular, which one's not, what names come back in. Which ones are like not cool anymore? I can tell you this. Jezebel has never been on our list. It's not on our list for this baby in October. Um, I know some of you think at some point we have so many kids, we're going to have to eventually run out of names and use Jezebel. We will recycle names before we use Jezebel. Uh, We will name them numbers, which are infinite. Um, Jezebel today still has like a negative connotation to it. Now, some of you may know someone named Jezebel. I hope she's a lovely lady. Um, But it's kind of like one of those names like Judas. Uh, Like no one names their kid Judas anymore. Um, It was a very popular name in first century Jewish life. But you don't really meet too many Judases anymore. Uh, And so here, like, it's important for us to understand that that Israel, like in the Old Testament with, with the real Jezebel, Israel just didn't quit worshiping God and just worship um, Baal. They, 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 they worshipped um, Baal as well as the Lord. So Christ uses the name Jezebel here, I think, to show that the same divided loyalty is now present in Thyatira. That people worship Jesus on Sundays, but then they worship money, possessions, relationships, fame, and status 
the rest of the week. So you have this Jesus or Jezebel. Like, which one are you going to worship? And the same is true in churches today. People can show up and have, like, this appearance of being this, like, respected member of the church, while at the same time in their personal lives, they're just full of compromise. But Christ, as we see in this passage, has eyes of blazing fire, which we see here, he he searches our hearts and minds. So you can pull a fast one off on any one of us in this room. You can pull a fast one on your wife, your husband, your family, but you cannot pull a fast one over on the Lord. He sees all. So Jesus identifies several problems with Jezebel. First, she calls herself a prophetess. I mean, who said she was a prophetess? She did, not God. When people give themselves titles, like when there's self-proclaimed title, that's usually not a good sign. So here she was an imposter. She's pretending to be something that she wasn't. So Jesus, he's already addressed the problem of imposters several times in his letters. With Ephesus, they were dealing with those who called themselves apostles, but they were not. Smyrna, they were dealing with those who say that they were Jews, but they were not. And then here in Thyatira, there is this woman who calls herself a prophetess, but she is not. We should discern those who make claims for themselves against the word of God. Who let the word of God show us who they are. Which leads us to the next accusation, which says that she is teaching. Now, Paul instructs the church in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that the teaching in the church should be done by a pastor. One of the qualifications listed to be a pastor is to be a man. Now, there's a lot of debate in our culture right now about what is a man and what is a woman. Is it fluid? Can a woman do everything a woman can do? Can a woman do everything that a man can do? These are good questions. These are great questions that the church should be asking. Um, because I, I think throughout history, women have been so disrespected that these are great questions for us to, to think through um, value of a man and a woman. The church has not done a great job teaching that men and women have been created with equal value. But what our culture has a hard time, and I think a lot of churches have a hard time understanding, is that your value does not come from what you do. Preaching and teaching is not a matter of ability. It's a matter of order and submitting to God's word. Being a pastor gives me no more value. It gives me no more greater standing with God than it does my wife, who, who is by far a better and far more gifted communicator than I'll ever be. Pastoring is about order. It's about trusting and submitting to God's word, whether it's culturally popular or not. The last two accusations against, Jeze- against Jezebel was that she was seducing Christ's servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Sexual immorality and, and acts of adultery are a huge deal to God. God calls us to a life of holiness. He calls us to purity. He calls us to faithfulness. He calls us to follow him and not the world. As one author puts it, when the church looks like the world, you have a sick church. When the church acts like the world, you have an impotent church. And when the church plays with the world, you have an unfaithful 
church. God is a good father. And as a good father, he will not allow his children to walk down a path of destruction without stepping in, without intervening. And so he steps into their life. We see he is patient with his children, with loving but firm discipline. He will address every area in your life that needs repentance. And we see that in verse 21. It says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of sexual immorality. So here, this is a person in the church, in leadership at Thyatira, who has been confronted. It seems like it's been many times. There's been time as a lapse because she's had time to repent, but has not repented. And now Jesus is shifting the blame just from her, from only her, to now to the church. Because they're continuing to tolerate Jezebel. This is probably a good place uh, for us to stop and remind us that perfection is the goal that we should strive for. But perfection has only been achieved by one man. And that's who we celebrate today. It, it may shock some of you, but that one man was not Jay Lacani. It was not Bruce Mosser. It was not Adam Goodwin. We, we are to strive for perfection, but also understand that we are going to fall short of that goal. There's only been one man who's lived the perfect life. It's Christ. So all of us, we just know like cards on the table. When I look at you, when you see me, I see brokenness. I see people with sin in their life who are stumbling along this life, trying to cross the finish line. That's what I see this morning, and that's what you see with me. And so when we sin, God expects us to be a community of repenting sinners. That's what he calls us to do. That he knows we're going to sin, but when we sin, he expects us to repent. There's an expectation for those who belong to Jesus to repent of their sin. It's kind of what reveals where your allegiance belongs. Refusing to repent of sin identifies you, honestly, as someone who's unregenerate. And Jesus talks a lot, as we've been walking in community groups through um, John's gospel, he talks a lot about sheep, and that he, he refers to Christians as sheep, and sheep will follow their shepherd, and those that don't follow the sheep, he refers to them as goats. So that's how you know if you're, really, if you're true Christian, true Christians are going to repent of their sin. So by refusing to repent... Jezebel was showing that she did not belong to the people of God, that she was not um, in right standing with the church, with God. And once she made this plain, the church at Thyatira had the responsibility to tell her that truth. They had the responsibility to protect the flock. They had the responsibility to exclude her from the church, but instead they were tolerating her. The moment that I'm confronted with sin and I won't repent... And it's clear that I'm not repenting of obvious sin. I need to be gone. You need to remove me from this church. You need to love your family enough to remove me from this position or any other elder or any of us. But they were tolerating her. But whether the church will do the right thing or not, God will always do the right thing. God will see every wrong Turn right. And we see this in verse 22 and 23. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. 
and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. Again, God is gracious. He's slow. He gives them opportunities to repent. He desires their perfection, but he understands that they're not going to be perfect. So he's given them opportunities to repent, and they're not. And he says, I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. When God takes out Jezebel and her children, all the churches will know. And what will they know? That I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. We see here that God is just. Jezebel and her children may fool others, but they do not fool Christ. So let me encourage you this morning, if, if anyone has ever wronged you and you feel they've gotten away with it, just rest knowing that Jesus will give them as they deserve. And knowing that Jesus will judge them should lead you to pray for that person, uh, that, that they would repent and that they would not face Christ's judgment. So here we see that not everyone was fooled by Jezebel. There was a remnant of true believers in that church at Thyatira. We see this in verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Hope is not lost for this church. There are still some in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Jezebel claimed secret knowledge, but her teaching comes from Satan and results in death and destruction. See, that's what Satan does. He deceives us. He dangles like this thing out in front of you to think if you just had this, your life would be much better. That Jesus wants to rob you. He wants to take things from you. So he deceives you. Satan always offers you more, but he cannot cash the check. And here we see this mentioning of the deep things of Satan. What are these deep things of Satan? Does little Nas have like these deep things of Satan? Does he have this knowledge? Are the deep things from Satan for little Nas, this rapper, to make him a shoe? I don't know if you saw that this week, that there is this... You know, the little, little Nazi is this rapper that, uh, that he made um, what's called the Satan shoe. There's 666 pairs of these shoes that for, for sale. There are these Nike shoes that Nike's actually selling, uh, uh, suing this company who ripped off their shoe, made a Satan shoe. Uh, when I first saw this, I thought it was like a Babylon Bee article. I thought it was like satire, but it was like actual real news. Um, and so many people were shocked that, that there's this Satan shoe um, by, like, how would Lil Nas do this? Um, I was not so shocked. It was not the first time he's made something so hideous. Have you ever heard Old Town Road? My goodness. That song is more satanic than the shoe. You've got elementary boys and girls walking around singing, can't nobody tell me nothing. Like, what's, what is it? That's awful. So whatever the deep things of Satan were, there was a remnant that did not hold to Jezebel's teaching. They, they held fast to Christ. And to those who endured, to those who persevered, 
Jesus made a twofold promise to them. Look at verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is amazing. We see in verse 26 that the one who conquers is the one who perseveres until the end. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's not the one who gets all hyped up and, and they're just you know, sold out for Christ for a month. It's, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's not a battle, but a war. To the one who finishes the race, to the one who survives the war, Jesus makes two astonishing promises in this passage. The first one is found in verse 26 and verse 27. To him, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earth, earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This is amazing language here. This seems like something that only Christ would have written about himself. But here, this is Christ talking about to those that, that conquer, that, that remain, that persevere. The phrases of this, um, these verses come right out of Psalm 2, Psalm 95. These psalms reflect where the Father has given his authority over to the Son, and now we see the Son promises that he's passing his authority over to the one who conquers, that they're going to rule with him. So why in the world would Christ allow any one of us to co-rule or reign with him? I mean, this is amazing. This is what we have in the gospel message. That for me, like, I know that I deserve hell. Like, I, I've rebelled against God because of my sin. I deserve his wrath upon me. And so I, I embrace the gospel. That I love that, that he is gracious enough to give me salvation. And, and so for me, I just, I just want to be in heaven. Just, just let me in the gate. I don't need, like, I don't deserve that. But I don't deserve anything more than that. And so this picture is amazing that not only does he let you in the gate of heaven, but he begins to lavish upon you his riches, that he allows you to co-rule and reign with him. That's amazing to me. And, and so here he, he allows us to co-rule and reign, where many of us, we can't even find our phone and keys. I'm going to be the one in heaven, like, who've misplaced the rod of iron. Like, I can't rule today, Christ. I, I've misplaced the rod of iron. But here we see Christ honors his faithful disciples by allowing them to co-reign with him. We will serve under Christ, sitting on thrones because of his gracious and sovereign authority. What Jesus received from his Father, he is now sharing with the servants. This is amazing. One author says it this way. If we want to rule with Jesus in the future, 
We have to be faithful to him in the present. The second promise that Jesus makes to the one who conquers is found in verse 28. It says this, and I will give him the morning star. So he gives us this morning star. This is a reference to Christ himself. This comes from Revelation 22, Numbers 24. In the end, we get the greatest treasure in human history. We get Jesus. It's not the streets of gold. It's not the mansion. It's not your pet is awaiting for you in heaven, all right? The greatest treasure is Christ himself. And he's giving himself to us. In all his fullness and glory, we get to be with him. And as we keep moving through Revelation, when we get to like chapters 4 and 5, my goodness, he's just lifted up. He's, he's magnified. He's glorious. And we get him. This letter to the church at Thyatira is a great picture of the Easter story for us. Here's a letter it's the longest of the seven letters written to the most insignificant of the seven cities. That is a letter full of grace. I mean, why even bother? Just some little, little town out in the country. Why would Christ bother even writing a letter to them? Why not just write to the, the New York, the L.A., Chicago, Atlanta? No. He writes a letter to Thyatira. This is absolutely beautiful. Jesus includes people who aren't that important from a human perspective. Jesus was not just watching over the mega churches and thriving cities, but he knew what was going on even in the most insignificant rural towns. And this is the story of the gospel, that there is a God who is far above all mankind, but he loved man so much that he sent his only son into the world so that whoever would believe in his son would not perish but have eternal life. I love how 1 Corinthians puts it. Chapter 1, verse 26 says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So this is the story of redemption. I, I, when I think of the, this letter to Thyatira, I think it's, it could easily be the, to the, the church in Appalachia. You know, not, not many people are, you know, running to Huntington, West Virginia, but yet when I read this letter, I find comfort knowing that Christ cares about this church. He cares about Huntington Community Church and how she lives out her life in front of the world. And so this, this weak and foolish and lowly people, this is who Jesus is entrusting to co-reign and rule over the nations. When you hear all of this, like what he's done for us, why would you not choose Christ this morning? What's keeping you from choosing Jesus right now? What is Jezebel offering you that looks so good and satisfying that Christ can't give you? 
Because I promise you, everything that she's offering you is just an empty promise. She can't satisfy what your heart longs after. Only Christ can. So who are you going to choose this morning? You choosing Jesus or are you choosing Jezebel? Jezebel holds you captive. She makes you a slave to these things where Jesus sets you free. Jezebel offers promises that she cannot fulfill. Jesus offers you life, life to the fullest. Jesus, or Jezebel makes much of herself. Jesus makes much of others. And that is a good description of Easter. Easter is a holiday where the one we celebrate and we make much of has made much of us. On the night before his death, Jesus was preparing his disciples um, for his departure. The worst day in human history at the same time was going to be the best day in human history. On that Thursday night, Jesus was sharing the Passover meal with his disciples, and he told them that, that this bread, it, it was going to represent his body that was going to be broken for them. And after he'd eaten the bread, he, had, he took the cup at the table, and um, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. He told them to do this in remembrance of him. So here we are this morning, Easter Sunday, 2021, and we stand in the between. Communion, the Lord's Supper, forces us to look back. Forces us to look back to what he's done for us, that he came, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died in our place as a substitute for our sin, was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead, ascended back to heaven, where he continues to rule and reign. And then here we are, standing in this gap, also looking ahead to the day that he's returning. He's returning to gather his people, to restore all the brokenness, to perfect those who have been redeemed. And so this morning, we join millions of saints throughout history who find hope in the table of the Lord's Supper. So if you're a guest this morning, we, we want you to participate. If you are a Christian, we want you to come participate in the Lord's Supper. If you are not a Christian, then we ask that you just stay where you are this morning. But uh, we're going to have two stations for you. And this is a, an opportunity for you um, just to celebrate what Christ has done. That, that not only has he offered life to you, but he's also offered, he's lavished upon you this, this, this ability to co-rule and reign with him in heaven. It's just Incredible. So before you come, prepare your hearts. So what that means is if there's any sin in your life, confess of that sin. If there's people you need to forgive, forgive them as you have been forgiven. Take this opportunity to prepare your heart to receive um, the Lord's Supper this morning. And so you're going to come to stations, um, and they're both the same. You're going to come. There's some of the older, um, um, if, if I don't know where you are with, with COVID and, and things being touched or whatever, there's there's some of the uh, communion sets that have the little uh, pill on top where you peel off the top and it has the bread in it, and then the next layer you peel off has the juice. The other cups you'll see um, have two cups. The bottom one has the bread. The top one has the cup. 
And then if we run through all of those, we also have um, just bread by itself and, and the, the cup by itself. So you come whenever you are ready and participate in the Lord's Supper this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for uh, your grace and mercy. We thank you for loving us enough to confront us in our sin. So Lord, may we choose you every day of the week over Jezebel. May it not just be a Sunday choice that we show up Sunday looking great for you, but then the rest of the week our hearts and our treasure is found in something else. And Lord, if that's the case, may we repent this morning. May our loyalty lie with you and you alone. We want our hearts to be captivated by you. So maybe right now, Lord, just reveal areas of our hearts that maybe where we show loyalty to something else. Maybe it's to possessions. Maybe it's to status. Maybe we love the praise of man. So I pray that you would remind us of all the good things that we're doing in our lives, but also that you would love us enough to not allow unrepented sin just to go unnoticed. So Lord, may we have ears to hear from your spirit this morning. And if you this morning, you've never repented of your sin, if you've never trusted in Christ, this is a great time for you to reflect on why you haven't. Today's the best day ever. And you could become a Christian and you could start your life in Christ on a day that we celebrate the most important day in human history. And all you have to do this morning is to repent of your sin, to trust that Christ died for your sin, and just live for him, that you give him your allegiance, that he is your king, that you're part of his kingdom. So this morning we want to celebrate all that you're doing, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.